Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of the LCLC podcast. The first season of this podcast is devoted to compiling an oral history of the Louisville Conference on Literature and Culture, or the LCLC, a conference that began back in 1972 here at the University of Louisville and continued without interruption for 48 years until the cancellation of the 2021 conference due to the COVID pandemic. In this episode, I chat with Michael Ananea, who headlined the LCLC After Dark Reading this past February 2022 during our 49th conference. Now a favorite among LCLC attendees, the After Dark Poetry Reading traditionally takes place at the historic Brown Hotel. Michael Ananea is a poet, essayist, and fiction writer. His published work includes 12 collections of poetry, among them Selected Poems, In Natural Light, and his most recent, Night Songs and Clamors. His work is widely anthologized and has been translated into Italian, German, French, Spanish, and Czech. He's also published a novel, The Red Menace, and a collection of essays, In Plain Sight. While at the LCLC, Ananea had the pleasure of attending a panel on his work featuring contributors to the recent festschrift, From the Word to the Place, edited by Leah Graham and published by Mad Hat Press. This episode of the LCLC podcast includes two snippets recorded from Ananea's Brown Hotel reading. The first is the sonorous conclusion of On the Conditions of Place, the poem Michael selected to start his reading. The second features what for me was a real highlight of the night, the poem Tintin Deo. Our discussion began with the question I like to ask all my guests here on the LCLC podcast. Just what is it you remember about your visit to Louisville? Well, it it was charming and and exciting in a couple of ways. One was it's it's so much devoted to contemporary poetry and to that part of contemporary poetry that interests me the most. But you know, the two charming moments were the panel discussion uh, about my work, which was you know really amazing, interesting situation to be in, with three wonderful essays. And then the reading, which uh, I can talk about in detail if you want to, but I, it was one of your questions. But the reading was amazing, not just because it was in such a convivial, you know, convivial space with the uh, with the op- with the open bar and and the sort of lounge attitude, but also because it was filled with people who I know very well and who know my work very well. So it changes the dynamic of a reading when you're reading to it audiences i did a couple of weeks ago in in uh, in new york of people who don't know your work uh when you're reading to a group of people who know it extremely well and have known it for you know 25 or 30 years so it's pretty amazing uh and that that was charming what's your process for getting your lineup together of what you're going to read well usually i i I have a sort of string of things that i think i might read but I picked that when I wanted to read something older anyway, and that poem's from the very early 80s. But uh, mostly because you were in the room when they had a, a slight disagreement 
after the panel discussion about whether or not that I'm a poet of place or a poet of time. And in its own complicated way, that poem takes up both of those questions. I saw you once at the window, uh, twisting a strand of hair around your finger, sunlight curling inward to your touch. Poplars in the wind, white underleaves like sea flowers, lines of foam, bright wings, and sails in rough weather. Bid them all fly, be gone. Sometimes it seems that more has been lost than ever remains that we live in a slow passing among indecipherable signs, strangest and charm, the numbered particles of weight and light spin out the patterns matter takes. All that we know is consequence, hand, hair, moist skin, leaf curl, the day. As indistinct as water is in water, places dissolve into places, words among words, what is carried along, names whose sense shapes our memory, all that is said of what, of what might be said, palatine or plat, a leaf, a stem, a proper noun, a spit curl of scum that draws along a moving stream, the probable line of what is seen. And the audience was so responsive. You know, I could read every day to, to Peter O'Leary, who was just, you know, jumping out of his chair with pleasure over what I was doing. You know, and, and it was an astonishing audience. So I, I've known Peter since he was in graduate school. I've known uh, Alan Golding since he was in graduate school. And it, it goes on like that. So it was it was kind of amazing. And so I was choosing poems that I thought would, would be interesting to the audience. And then at the end, I... I read some new poems because I never like to do a reading without doing something that has already been collected. Mm -hmm. When you went into the first three poems that are in the night songs and clamors, did you have the urge to, to read the entire sequence or well, I did, I did, but I, I wanted, I, you know, I, I wanted to move on. And uh, the first three poems seemed to me to uh, to suit the occasion, particularly this, the second one, uh, which is dedicated to my old friend Maureen Hunter, and is about. It has a musical base to it. There's a lot of music in the rest of that poem, but that that particular uh, section is about a place in Omaha, Nebraska that, you know, really no longer exists as a museum there. Uh, but but the, 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 that that space, that particular street where the streetcar came around and the streetcar and the trolley, the electrical connection on the top of the streetcar would change wires and it would always spark, particularly at night. It looked like a sprink, uh, you know, sparkler that you had on the 4th of July coming down. And uh, so that seemed to me to be a way of of knitting up some different things in the reading. That is, place in Omaha, Nebraska, time that was in the 1950s, and the music that I was going to do more of in the reading. Today, I, I didn't know what to read, but I noticed that there is a building on the Louisville campus called Gottschalk. And that name for the great American composer, Louis Mora Gottschalk. So I'm going to read... Tintendeo, 
in which Jacques appears. Tintendale was a, a, a piece done in 1947 by Dizzy Gillespie and, and Chateau Paso, the great timidest from Cuba. And it had, the problem has to do with how Cuban, Afro-Cuban music came into America over time. So it's called Tintindeo. Oh, Ache is a word from the, the, the Santeria, which means the human spirit. It's the central energy of the world. Ache, not so much in the beat as in the space, the silence, not quite silence, memory and anticipation between one beat and the next, the air above the drum skin, dizzy in tropic light. Move this way, it says, hips and arms in flight, heel and toe earthbound. What sunlight teaches is darkness, darkness light, sepal and whispering, tintindeo, tumbadoras, there in syllable and song, habanero, estrella, turning. Gottschalk in Havana in 1854 heard it, spent months carefully noting the rests in the score for A Night in the Tropics. Nearly 600 instruments sound like dense foliage, banana tree and plumeria, and silences etched into the music beat moist skin and leaf's edge, light and shadow, the way hips move beneath the bundle balanced on her head, the dirt track uneven grace and purpose swing implies dance estreita, the little turn pauses and turns again. Stars above the sea's tumult turn in the night sky, slow dancing, Palm fronds thrash and thrash at the, at the salt wind, swing over the waves, steady lift and fall. Kelp lines in the sand and brief phosphorus, tropic air tinged as always with decay. Kiss, did you say? The word merely or the act, breaths other beat and rest, the tongue sway, samba, double and triple the horn behind the brush of finger and palm, the drumhead pulled taut her abdomen, tight as a melon, she says. Tight. When you're working on a sequence like that one, it seemed to me to be a, uh, a poetics that embraces that kind of appropriate for a nostalgic topic as we're talking about the 50s and streetcars and seeing the sparks. And it reminded me a lot of the sort of the early work of Eliot, for example, that it's really invested in um, a certain kind of poetics that seeks to evoke, uh, seeks to evoke a, a mood. Um, it, is that a fair assessment of what well, you were the trying to do? About that, the thing, the thing about that, Matthew, is that the Eliot's early poems, particularly Preludes, were among the group of poems that were enormously important to me, say, in the late 50s when I was starting out. 
And in fact, and then one of the fun things that happened as a result of that is that, that you're, you're always knocked out by critics who see exactly through the haze created by a poem or a book of poems. And, and one of the fine reviews of that first book compared my, my versification to Eliot's and, and, and to Preludes particularly. But I, I don't think you're wrong about that. What I was trying to do in that poem is to merge those nostalgic items, the, the, the episode in the steel mill uh, and, and uh, the, the streetcars and the two girls standing on the street looking across into that night that was too dangerous for them to enter the place where sin exists. And, and I got things into that poem. I've been looking to get into poems. But then it, then the next stage is Rameau, and that's Baroque music, and the, the Castor and Pollux. And, it, you know, it, it, it goes on, and then it has that, you know, episode from uh, Lucretius in there. It goes on to other things. So I was trying to bring present speculation into the environment of the past. That's one of the things I, I try to do in poems. And that book particularly is, you know, is about the solitude that I first experienced since I was 21, because it was after my wife passed away. And and uh, the whole book isn't elegiac in that sense. It does, some of it's there, and it does uh, try to cope with that distance between, you know, memory and ex- and present experience. Going down this road of thinking about your poetics and its relation to music is is not a new question for you to have to f- to field. It's it's a uh, an observation. It's an obvious observation. And one of the poems that you read, uh, you talked about Tintindeo, uh, a important watershed jazz standard. Now, I guess you might call yeah, it 19, 1947 that's yeah and i was i was wondering if i could get you to talk a little bit about your feelings about the future of your your kind of poetry that seems to be in such a symbiotic relation with American jazz music is is this something that you see in danger or what is the future for for that style? Well, I mean, jazz jazz has become you know strangely an academic exercise. I mean, most places where jazz is fervently played are colleges. I mean, this this is where near where I live. Well, near in Texas is a relative to the term, but at Denton, Texas, at Texas State, you know, they they produce this extraordinary range of instrumentalists out of a jazz program in Illinois. Northern Illinois University had a great jazz program, but jazz has been, now, you know, it's like an ironic turn on, on Brubeck's title, Jazz Goes to College. And the, the answer maybe is it went there and stayed there. There's still jazz being played, but in, in Austin, where I live, there have been several jazz things. And, and the joke among some of the musicians is that when they see me come in, they say, you know, we're about to be finished because I've been the last person in the audience 
for a number of these residencies. But, you know, there is a new club that's open. I haven't been there yet because of the pandemic. But we'll, you know, we'll see. The thing about jazz for me is that it represents what I'd like to do in poems. That is, I'd like to have the, I'd like to have the poem feel as though it's being invented in the moment, but is absolutely secure in its understanding of its own medium. So that, so that I'd like the poem to feel certain at the same time that it feels as though it's coming into the present as a sort of invention. And that, and, and, and that's, I don't know how to talk about that in terms of poetry and my anxiety for the future. One of my anxieties is that, is that there's a lot of interesting writing going on now in the guise of poetry, but it's mostly just cut up prose because it's not interested very much in its own music. So, so you get these wonderful, you know, basically experiential essays uh, about one thing and another, and uh, and they they seem not to be devoted to any kind of music or musical invention. I share that anxiety, and it leads me to wonder if you feel that poets uh, haven't the new generation of poets coming up would do well to heed advice that I heard you give repeating this advice on an earlier uh, YouTube podcast that it would do well for a poet to learn how to do something else other than poetry well so that they can write about that. And one of the things that they might benefit from uh, learning well is an appreciation of music. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm a frustrated musician. I've, I, I played the trombone when I was in school. I was never very good at it. I wanted to play jazz. I joined the combo. And I just, I couldn't, if you're going to play jazz, you have to think in music. You can't think about music. You have to think in music. That's a, it's a different way of, of, approaching an art form. But I do think it's important that that poets engage themselves in other forms of study. I always recommended languages and in one way or another, like foreign language, you know, to pick up a second or third language is a great thing. To do translation probably teaches you more about poetry than almost any other exercise. But also thinking about music and how music moves and both classical and, and jazz, but also rock and roll. I, I don't write that much. I've written a couple of things involved with the rock, but I don't write that much about it. And it's odd because it was the music of my teenage years. It was being invented while I was in high school. But I, you know, I never felt the same aesthetic attachment to rock that I feel to, I mean, I listen to it. I, when I, before the pandemic in Austin, I went out and listened to music music maybe two three nights a week and a lot of that was blues or blues rock or texas blues and i like it appreciate it but mm -hmm. but in terms of informing what i do as a poet and thinking aesthetically that uh, uh that doesn't play such a great part as jazz does but that's again it's it's you know jazz is one of the great musical inventions of of uh, all of human history it, and you could see that when jazz began to move into the Middle East. I mean, you get you get Brubeck and and Louis Armstrong moving through 
Turkey and Greece, you get, you know, people moving in Paris. You suddenly have an entire world drawn to jazz because it proposed a different way of thinking about the relationship between the individual and the form. And that's that's hugely interesting. And I don't I don't I, I don't worry too much about poetry. I, you know, sometimes I bemoan, the, you know, certain kinds of things going on. But in fact, it keeps in, reinventing itself. And those inventions are almost always interesting. Also, you can't tell in the moment one invention in poetry is going to be the enduring one. Right. You know, they, in, in the 1950s, when I first started writing and publishing in the early 60s, uh, if you look at American poetry, you would think that, you know, the confessional mode and then a certain kind of ironic formalism, you know, Anthony Hecht and, uh, you know, Howard Nemiroff and my colleague John Nims, who were always all great sort of formal virtuoso poets, but writing basically ironic, distanced poems from their own experience. My, my friend and, and sometime teacher Carl Shapiro's poems, which are brilliant, but they, they're always at some distance, some removed from what they're writing about. Oh, wonderful nonsense, lotions of lucky tiger. That's the start of his, his uh, bar- barbershop poem. But it's the oh and nonsense that govern that poem, the sense that the poet is at some distance from those materials. And then you suddenly, well, you mentioned Frank O'Hara in our correspondence. Then you get to somebody like O'Hara, who simply steps into that world and, you know, <laughs> like Alice, you know, steps steps through the looking glass and, and sees an entirely different world. So, so I, that's, I like that, actually, because O'Hara's writing about self is entirely different than Lowell or Sexton's or anybody else writing about self. You know, he simply steps into the self and then turns around and looks with, you know, profound delight about what surrounds him. Yeah, uh, I was wondering if I could get you to to talk a little bit more about your connection to O'Hara and what you think your publishing efforts were able to do for him. Well, I... I you know, had been the poetry editor of a magazine called Audit in, uh, in when I was in a, a graduate school in Buffalo, maybe starting in 62. Uh, and that was a magazine that had been founded by Ralph Maud as, poetry, uh, as Audit of Magazine of Poetry and Opinion. That sort of waned after a while, and a, a guy named David Galloway took it up and turned it into a quarterly. And he asked me to be the poetry editor. And then David finished his PhD and went to... Europe to teach and left the magazine to me and I didn't have any money particularly or, or but I but I was able to talk Al Cook the the new head of the English department at Buffalo into giving me some support so he gave me an office I took on Charles Doria as associate editor and we sat down and had one of those profound conversations you have when you have the world ahead of you as all potential and and no authority at all and we decided in a way you do when you're, you know, in your early 20s, what was the most important thing to do in American poetry? And we decided that long poems and and single author issues would, would be the way to go. So then the question is, what single author will we do? Well, we had both read O'Hara, out back to Meditations in an Emergency, Second Avenue, uh, you could only read really in rare book room. Uh, 
And so I, we decided we'd do a whole issue devoted to Frank O'Hare. I called him on the phone at the Museum of Modern Art. I told him who I was. I said what we wanted to do. He said, that sounds great. And yes, we'll do it. And then there was some delay in getting the stuff. And my wife and I were in New York that winter. And so we agreed to go down to Frank's loft. Uh, and it was on Lower Broadway. And uh, we went. And uh, he he took me to the it was a it was an old industrial loft and what had probably been the coat hall at the front at the top of the stairs was the room where he had kept his files and there was a stack of poetry manuscripts maybe a better part of four feet tall and he grabbed a, a big chunk of that and we sat on the floor and looked at poems and so so I, I kept take, I took more I took more than that we could ever publish. <laughs> and uh, and I, I put them in a suitcase and and took them back to Buffalo and began to work on these things. And then he got in touch with me and said, I'm, I'm about to finish a, a, a new poem. It's quite long. Would you want to see it? And I said, yes. And that was Biotherm. So the issue, you know, begins with some fairly recent O'Hare poems, a couple of older ones, uh, like the little elegies, uh, the uh, James Dean poems. And then ends with that very long, incredibly complicated poem, uh, Biotherm. So, uh, so, but uh, my role, I mean, that, that's what I did with O'Hara. That was one issue. We stayed friends, although he, you know, he didn't last that long after that, but, you know, before the accident. But, uh, but I saw him whenever I go to New York and we have lunch. And, uh, so we, in that sense, became friends, uh, and what I did, I think, of any of consequence is that issue. There was a kind of it's, there was a kind of need for O'Hara in the world. We published fifteen hundred copies, which is unimaginable in, a, in an upstart magazine these days, and they all sold out. The whole whole, whole issue sold out. It, at one point, we had a managing editor named Betty Cohen. She had she kept a few in her house. I don't think intentionally. She just you know they just happened to be there. Uh, <coughs> The, the book that that came from City Lights called Lunch Poems had been accepted uh, years before uh, but by Ferlinghetti. And then it was delayed for some reason. And I, I think maybe Ferlinghetti had heard O'Hara read. Uh, his enthusiasm may have begun to wane. It's hard to know. But, but the audit thing came out in 64, and that jogged, I, it's always been my view, the Lunch Poems. Uh, which came out the same year. And then, you know, of course, you know, Frank was there within a few years of that. And right. it was, so I, I don't know what, what positive role I have, except that I did find myself drawn to some pretty intricately designed O'Hara poems that were contemporary. You know, they were, they were new poems. Uh, the, uh, the, there were new poems at the time. And and most of the lunch lunch uh, lunch poems were uh, were earlier from from the fifties. Mm -hmm. In talking about O'Hara, it, it seems that he's uh, now positioned, sort of ideally, really, um, as the crossroads or a, a figure in the crossroads of the sort of multiple poetry camps that we were beginning to to sketch out as you were talking about Carl Shapiro, for example, and Anthony Hecht and and sort of 
that that modernist strand that's very formal and distanced and then that sort of beat strand that is as you were talking about it confessional and improvisational and then the emerging language poetry sort of stuff let's call it and o'hare seems do you agree with that assessment as to why he might be such a significant figure well i think i think first of all uh, you know any poet is you know, raised in in uh, a sort of significant set is cultural awareness by by the poets that follow after. And O'Hara, you know, O'Hara was surrounded by inc- an incredibly talented group of people, including Kenneth Koch, who was an absolute master and an incredibly capable poet. And then and John Ashbery, who at that time was living in Paris. But, you know, O'Hara never gave a reading while John was out of the country without including one Ashbury poem. So that group, which was, you know, very closely allied with each other, and then the other sort of stuff that happened in New York surrounding their activity, you know, made made people, gave people greater sort of presence. The interesting thing about O'Hara is until after he died, he never had a major publisher. I mean, if you figure that Grove was basically a renegade small press operation, particularly in the 50s, when they published, you know, when Sorrentino was just there as editor and they published Coke, Olson, Duncan, O'Hara. Uh, but, but you know, eventually Coke had a major, you know, uh, uptown publishers and Ashbury sort of started with a Yale book. So O'Hara was, you know, it's interesting that after all of that, O'Hara is the one whose name comes to mind so quickly. There are a handful of poems that people also that, that in the fate of a poem, there are poets, there are a handful of poems that people remember extremely well. The Lana Turner poem, for example, mm-hmm. uh, which for years when I, I would, when I would, I would hand out a sampler, a mimeograph sampler to my classes. If I did an introduction to poetry class or a beginning creative writing class and the sampler always had the Lana Turner poem in it. Uh, sometimes a step away from you. And uh, and Creeley's I know a man uh, and uh, Gwendolyn Brooks uh, we real cool I wanted to to show the students how quickly almost suddenly voicing could could locate the poet and the poem um, and so that you know then and uh, but O'Hara gives us a place there that you you wouldn't see occupied otherwise. Mm-hmm. Taking the conversation back to your visit to Louisville and the Brown reading and your approach to live readings, you commented that about your preference to not memorize a poem, uh, but on the other hand, I'm not sure that, that you improvise off of the poem, but that it's important to you to read the poem live. And I believe you commented as if it was a score. And I I was interested if I could get you to talk more about your, um, your philosophy uh, about how you read your poems live. Yeah. Well, I have a, uh, as, I'm almost famous memory, and I have a lot of poems in my head, including my own. Although, although I have discovered recently that in the last 
Well, I mean, since my selected poem was published, I think I've, paid, I've published 400 pages of poems. So I don't have them all in my head the way I have the early ones. But but I I was I like Alec and I, we knew each other for a long time. But he would do this thing in which he would, you know, say which poem he's going to read. And then he put the book down and walk away from it and recite the poem. That's one way of doing it. I, I never liked that idea for myself. I wanted to make the reading a relationship between my voice, the palm on the page, and the audience. And and I did not want to do it as, as you know, as a as a, a recitative of some sort, or you know, a, a theatrical situation where I memorized the lines. I wanted to make the book and or the piece of paper a part of the reading. But I also found it a discipline for myself in the same way that. You know, you you see a, a, a pianist, you know, classical pianist, who, you know, has done the same sonata over and over again, and will have a, a page turner there. Not that not that he's going to look at the score, but that having the score there represents an interesting, evolving relationship to that kind of text, and that's that's the way I thought about it. When I interviewed Tom Slay earlier, he. Uh, had a similar investment in uh, in reading and in the idea that the printed poem was was a kind of um, incantation in a way that between the audience and the poet brings brings something sort of viscerally to life in the room, in the moment of reading um, that maybe stretches to the idea you cracked it as a joke in the reading about the new Gnosticism, you know, that, that, that there is um, something perhaps ineffable, but valuable in the poetry performance and I was wondering if if that's putting it too strongly for you, or if well, you agree. Look, we belong to what's now sort of, in in strange ways, called the culture of the book. If you were raised as I was as a Christian, there is a play, there's a thing in the front of the church called the lectern, and in the in the process of the service, there is a reading from the text. And the book is there. And if if you're raised in a Jewish tradition, you know, the Torah is there and it's it's so sacred you can't touch it. So so you have a long silver rod with a sculpted hand and an index finger on it, and you can move that you can move that well actually the other I made the wrong gesture. You can move right. that from right to left across the page. Uh so so that it, it is not new to us. That the relationship of speaker to text to, in that case, congregation, is a is a unique one, and I, I think that has resonances for all of us. That and the other thing, which which is a part of my life that I love, which is my mother was a wonderful reader, and and uh, she would my brother and sister and I would sit on the floor, and uh, she would read to us. And the, the the part that I remember best is one more chapter, one more chapter, please, 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 one more chapter, you know. And after a time, we sort of knew all these stories by heart. 
and uh, and could mutter along with them. But it was the act of reading that uh, and that that weird sharing between the child, the book and the, and the parent. My wife, as you may know, was a, 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 a specialist in reading and a professor of education. And she would always remind everybody that the only the single thing that predicts statistically whether or not a child will be an adult reader is whether or not he or she was read to as a child by their parents. And and so I, I think between between the sacramental reading and the familiar, you know, you think back on it, the. the the sacred was always had to do with the hearth. This remnant is the candle in the church, but but it always had to do with the hearth and what you did around the hearth, you know, as and and, and you know, in speaking, storytelling, and uh, and reading. Uh, so yeah, I agree with Tom. I, I my joke about the new Gnosticism was aimed at O'Leary, I think, and uh, and uh, Norman Finkelstein, who are both. New Gnostics. I, I I'm troubled by that, but it, not for poetic reasons. It's poetically useful. I think politically, it's kind of scary. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, we live. You know, the, I, I I have described myself as an unreconstructed abstract expressionist, an art form that came out of an anxiety about reverent iconographies and you know following the fascist period in the in the you know from the 20s through the to the 40s and and that 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 kind of sense of the fully received image or figure uh i find troubling so what what i've done you know following on the modernists who, who still speak to me is to try to you know to engage those myths as ordinary occasions rather than as sacred objects. Uh, but that, you know, but politically it worries me, but po- poetically, you know, let them have, let them, let them eat cake. I, I much, I really love Peter's poems and I admire uh, Norman for what he does, different kind of poetry, much more discursive than mine. I was wondering if, if you thought that the um, dominance of, or, or at least limited dominance of the new formalism was in some part due to the the rise of the creative writing programs, as you've suggested, but specifically the ability, uh, I guess, to manipulate and create influence through that structure of Ivor Winters in his position out at Stanford and then the people that were trained under him. Um, I know you had the opportunity. Did you have the opportunity to cross paths with Winters? Well, we talked on the phone. I, I was his editor in an, only a titular fashion. That is, the last two books that of his that were published at Swallow were published while I was editor. And I did, I did edit a Janet Lewis book. Uh, the, 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 the later books of the actual hand editing was, were, was done by a, a remarkably good guy named Ken Fields at Stanford. But I did know Winters. And, and of course, one of the things that Swallow did was Alan Swallow did was to publish a lot of that Winters circle. But, you know, the interesting thing about Winters and, and Archibald wrote a book about this 
is that the group of poets in my generation who came out of Stanford, and none of them are like waiters. That's John Mathias, Robert Haas, Robert Peck, James McMichael, Robert Pinsky. They were all they were all at Stanford and winter students at the same time. Yeah, and perfect. none of them right. None of them writes like I, I suppose Pinsky's the one whose diction would be closest to Winters. Uh, but you know, McMichael is an incredible lyric poet. Matthias is, of course, you know this this extraordinary major poet in his own way. You know, who takes up almost any subject with equal agility, and and we all know Haas. Uh, who's who's the you know but you get two poets laureate out of that one class right uh, and, and tom gunn earlier as as i believe it was called on a drying hill has written about yeah, his yeah. his experiences with winters right there that it is well, almost I mean, the experience with winters particularly you know in terms of um transgressive sexuality shall we say is is a complicated one you know they, uh, Gunn goes out there, and, and Gunn had all the equipment that we think of that goes with formal poetry in, and was able to do wonderfully interesting things. Uh, but but also Hart Crane's engagement with Winters. I mean, some people claim that Winters is re- responsible for his death in some bizarre way. But, when, but Winters, you know, Winters early, Winters saw himself <clears throat> when he moved into his odd form of formalism. Uh, as leaving behind, he thought that if he had kept doing what he did as an early poet, he would have been known as a minor disciple of William Carlos Williams. And and he wrote about Williams, you know, early on in a book that I actually I actually did it at that book with guy him uh, guy Frank Smith called the uh, the Uncollected Essays. And so there are some of those essays that he wrote when he's still at Chicago in the twenties. They're kind of remar- remarkable, and primitivism and, and, and decadence is remarkable for that reason. But he, he occupied a station out there, which, you know, was a, on the corner of America, and he, he championed all these poets who were sort of poetasters. Uh, he, he was remarkable in a number of ways, but uh, anyway, that, that was one strain, kind of neo-Augustan thing. That's different from... But what what came along as the new formalism of a few decades ago, which I mostly thought of, I described it once, not very flatteringly, as one of those small cars that they comes to the middle of the ring in the circus, and then more clowns get out of it than you could imagine. <laughs> or fit in. But well, it, there is a way in which it's sort of the, I mean, you know, the yeah, the clown car that followed the the sort of significant formal project with all of its moral investments that winters championed whether yeah, one yeah. agreed or disagreed with it you know he it meant something significant whereas the new formalism seemed to be this kind of you know mindless well, why why were you it, doing it yeah I, I i the other problem is you know just in terms of the the course of reputation in poetry is that there there's an audience out there <clears throat> that doesn't particularly like poetry but absolutely insists that it be the poetry they didn't like in the first place <laughs> so so there there is a kind of, there's a, particularly an academic audience for that but the academy's engagement in terms of the flurries of of attention getting it gone in poetry really have to do not with what was done in among the poets but what was 
how it was received. So on opposite ends of the cultural spectrum, you have new formalism, which gets attention to in the academic setting because uh, because it's the poetry they didn't like in the first place. It's what they want poetry to stay. And they don't want to be offended or challenged by poetry. The other is the language poetry, which had its own, you know, philosophical groundings in linguistics and and phenomenology, in order the phenomenology of language, but but was in, incredibly companionable to that era of that you I think you just came out after it of theory in in the in the academy, right. and so they there was a companionability there that may not have been taken up by the prime. I don't, I don't think Searle was, was reading, uh, you know, Linogenian, but that, but that, uh, the graduate students of that era had been particularly attuned to theoretical notions in having to do with language and, um, you know, impenetrability or, or the, the materiality of language to use it phenomenological terms that they uh that they they found a ready home in that circumstance right so yeah. and, and and i don't i don't think that's what bernstein and company set out to do as a you know as a marketing tool but it did it, it did have a marketing effect in the same way that the formalists did right and to some extent black mountain because olson like pound uh or joyce is an industry Right. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. It does uh, bring me back, as you were just mentioning, and um, I guess it'll be my my final question for you uh, as we as we wrap up that I uh, ended up much to my surprise as a graduate student in the in at uh, the at Duke University at its queer theory moment, but also at its moment where it was sort of the, the pinnacle and poster child for theory uber alles. And, yeah. um, and I uh, was working with, among others, Eve Sedgwick there. And I, I kind of realized that I had gotten in through a, a kind of, kind of a fruitful misunderstanding of what my writing sample was, which <laughs> yeah, I, that's a great one. I uh, wrote about Frank O'Hara, and and my argument was that O'Hara uh, was heavily indebted not to the high canonical work of Hart Crane, but to the late Hart Crane, the sort of loose discursive Key West poems that yeah, right, were yeah. routinely discredited at, at the time as a fall off in power as they wanted to read this sort of suicidal loss of power arc into Crane. And that in reality, the late work is really the most vital if you look at what lives on in Crane's work. Nobody writes like high high modernist Crane, or at least I said anyway, but lots of people write like late style Crane. Let's look at Frank O'Hara and Eve Sedgwick sort of assumed that I was into homopoetics and even understood what the term meant, which I had no idea at all at the time, you know, I just was a poetry lover. Um, so I was curious to know your own thoughts about the vitality of Hart Crane um, and 
end uh, of that sort of high modernist style today. Well, I was uh, I was very taken with Crane, when, <laughs> particularly when I was an undergraduate, and then you know read the letters and uh, and you know at least one one of the big biographies, maybe maybe more than one. I'm looking at my shelf here. But but my fascination with Crane, first of all, was with the bridge because of its ambition. You know, it it is an ambition, unlike Lisa Grass, which which never finally got its full evolution. But there are things that happen <clears throat> there, like like what it is to you know to be moving along in speed and catch things only partially as you go by them. But the late Crane, which I've been reading lately, is especially interesting for two kinds of things. The, the rhetoric of, of early Crane is gone. And it was that rhetoric that held the materials together. So what happens, I think, in the later Crane that's interesting is a kind of faceting of intensities. So you get an intense observation followed by a, a, a break and another. So it's in, in many ways more cubist than the interesting stuff. But what I liked about that in Crane was that it, it escapes the governing rhetoric of the poem. And that's the feature most strongly carried on by the poets who are talking about of the 40s and 50s. That is, they, they had a kind of rhetoric and diction that held the materials of the poem together, and they were guided into, to some extent by the new critics who wanted to see the poem as a kind of whole in which, you know, in, you know, a well-wrought urn, as the, as the saying goes. But yeah, no, I think Crane is very interesting. I, I don't know the extent to which he influenced me. He certainly influenced O'Hara. O'Hara said once that in America, only Whitman, Crane, and Williams were more interesting than the movies. I hope you've enjoyed my conversation with the poet Michael Ananea. If you did, please consider hitting like and subscribe. And as always, please consider joining us for an upcoming conference presenting either live or virtually. Consult the LouisvilleConference.com for more details or reach out to me, Matthew Biberman, Conference Director. Thank you for listening.